Thank you. That was beautiful. And it's all beautiful. I love this time of year. The sanctuary is decorated, and we are just excited as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. I mean, it, puts, it reminds us of the freshness and the meaning of our faith. Brick, thanks for helping us get started with our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Of all the things that we do at Christmas that are great ways to celebrate, the Lottie Moon winds up being one of those that's really important to us. If you're a guest and you say, who is Lottie Moon? Well, she was a missionary. And uh, on the offering that we collect every Christmas all through December is taken in her honor. But it helps us fund international missions to the Southern Baptist work all over the world. You'll find offering envelopes in the pew in front of you if you guys choose to give this month. We'd love for you to pray about that so that we can help support international missions. Very important to Carterville. Hey, another kind of fun way to get behind that is we're going to have an auction, not this Wednesday night, but the next Wednesday night, we're going to have an auction. All the proceeds go to Lottie Moon. This year, it's going to be a live auction. We'll have an auctioneer. But what you need to do for the next 10 days to get ready for that is, is this. Number one, start finding some money, collect it so that you can give it. But second, let's find some good items for that auction because people will donate. You'll donate, we'll donate, go buy something, make something. But let's donate quality items for the auction and let's have a fun night uh, that Wednesday night. That's going to be not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday. We'll gather for our Lottie Moon auction. It's going to be a, a lot of fun. Can't wait for it. Well, tonight, t- this morning, as we begin our sermon series in Eternal Hope, is an opportunity for us to imagine how the birth of Jesus brought to bear on prophecies that Christ, that God made hundreds of years before his birth. It shows you that God is really wise and sovereign and that, that all of redemption's history has been played out over a large time scale. It gives me confidence that God is always at work and that we're not alone. So let's just stop and ask, what if you weren't alone? Like Alone makes life hard. Like when you're by yourself, you feel unsupported. You're scared in the dark. I think about kids that say, hey, I need to go outside. Will you go outside with me? It's dark. Come outside with me. You're scared in the dark when you're by yourself. Sometimes if you suffer from depression, loneliness is absolutely the worst thing for you, right? Maybe you get a, you're getting a biopsies done and you're worried about the results. And those moments when you feel alone are the most terrifying to you. Alone makes life tough. But in Christianity, we have a belief that you're never alone. In Christianity, we have a doctrinal truth that God is always with you. It's just hard to remember that. But what difference would it make if we could remember it? How much impact would it have on your life if you believed that this struggle through middle school, you're not alone in it? How much impact would it have if wrestling through, through transition in life or grief, huge job decisions, adolescent struggles, Breakups, family troubles, loneliness, depression, addiction. How much difference would it make if you really felt like you weren't alone in that? If you're making life-changing decisions, or if you feel like you're stuck in the lowest rut, how much difference would it make if you felt like you weren't alone? If you really believed that God was with you, that He was your advocate, your comforter, your companion, that He was as close as a prayer that if you could just open your eyes and see him, or, or if somehow you could be aware of his presence, how much difference would it make if you knew that you were going through high school with God as your companion? How often would that keep me from sin? How often would it give me courage? How much joy would it bring to my heart? How, how much could that awaken my soul to live out the purpose that God created me for? What if you knew that you weren't alone? So turn to Matthew chapter 1, and I want you to read in Matthew chapter 1, a visit from an angel to Joseph when Joseph is told that he's going to name this baby Jesus. Twice he's told you'll name him Jesus. And in the middle of that, 
Joseph is told to give the baby a nickname, that this baby will have a divine nickname that has been hanging out there in eternal hope for 700 years. And I want to show you how we're going to connect the dots between the New Testament and the Old Testament today in the birth of Jesus and why it matters for you. So Matthew chapter 1. Joseph has just been put in a tough situation, and you're going to be in tough situations this week, but Joseph has just been put in a tough situation. Joseph is betrothed to Mary, and Mary has been found to be pregnant. And Mary has come to Joseph, and she said, Joseph, listen, I'm pregnant, and I know it's not yours, but I need you to trust me that it's nobody else's either. Joseph's in a tough spot. I think sometimes because of the drama and the weight of the Christmas story, and because we've heard it all our lives, sometimes we forget the humanity of the Christmas story. That These people really had challenges, and for Joseph, this is a huge test. It's going to take a visit from an angel for Joseph to be able to walk in faith, but he does. And I'm glad he did, but let's read. I want to show you, and I want you to listen very carefully in this text until I find the nickname Emmanuel. I want you to see it in the context of the Scripture. Matthew 1, 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And here's the prophecy. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. A few things I want to highlight. You see the activity of the Holy Spirit. The child was brought by the Holy Spirit, and the angel tells Joseph the Holy Spirit. Joseph could not believe that the Holy Spirit was at work except by faith. This angel tells Joseph that God is on the move, and the Holy Spirit is moving around him in ways that Joseph would never believe. And the only way that Joseph can accept that is by faith. The second thing I want you to see is Jesus was given a real name, and in this text it comes up twice in verse 21 and again in verse 24. In 21, the Bible says, she'll give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. His name Jesus is a connection to the Old Testament name Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves. When Christ was born, the promise of his name is that he would save his people. As we saw last week when we read about the genealogy of Jesus, God's people have felt in exile for a long time, and we suffer from exile in our own sins. But Joseph is given a vision from the angel that Christ will save us from our sins. That's his name. Finally, you see the name a second time. To end this unit, verse 25, it's as if when the name is given, we can relax. Verse 25, but this, he did not consummate their marriage until she gave him a son, gave him the name Jesus. Yahweh saves. So this baby that the Holy Spirit has placed inside the womb of Jesus, according to this angel, should be named Jesus. And this baby, according to this angel, will heal the world of sin. It will undo the curse 
It'll save God's people. It'll bring an end to the exile. But in the middle of this vision, there's a nickname, a very special old nickname that the angel whispers to Joseph. And I need you to know that for 730 plus years, this nickname would have had weight and meaning in the house of David. When the angel greeted Joseph, he said, Oh, you house of David, don't forget that Joseph was of the line of David, but he's a carpenter, not a king. He's a peasant. Because the line of David had been undone. In exile, because of the sin of his forefathers, David's dynasty was broken. The tree of Jesse had been cut to a stump. But this angel greets this carpenter in Galilee and says, Son of David. And then he says, Emmanuel will be born. The baby's nickname, Emmanuel. Well, let's go to the Old Testament, Isaiah 7, because I want to show you where this name Emmanuel comes from. No doubt Joseph hears the nickname and shudders in his boots. No doubt Joseph hears the nickname and his heart fills with an eternal hope. No doubt Joseph moved from a moment when he was afraid, he was uncertain about what to do, he felt very alone. Here he stands beside his betrothed, but he feels like he's on the outside of a secret. And as alone as he could be, this angel lets Joseph know he's not alone, but in fact something God has planned for a long time is about to happen right in front of his eyes. So Isaiah chapter 7, I'll set the scene for you. Now we're going to pass on some of the social history for just a minute, but I will at least set this up. Here's what's going on. Isaiah is a great prophet. And God is about to send him with a prophecy. But in order for him to take the prophecy, he has to take his son. So his sidekick gets to go. Have you ever been to work with your dad? Or have you ever been to work with your mom? Well, on this job shadow day, Isaiah takes his son, Shear Yashub, with him. Now, Shear Yashub is his son. His name means a remnant will return. Well, this sets up the rest of the prophecy. What's about to happen is bad news. Israel is about to be conquered. That's the ten tribes that live in the north. But Judah and Jerusalem will soon be conquered. The two tribes down in the south, Benjamin and Judah, whose capital is Jerusalem. Well, Isaiah has to go and give a word of hope to the king. The king's name is Ahaz. So basically, imagine the scene. Isaiah the prophet, with his sidekick, little buddy, Shear Yashub, little remnant will return. They're on the way to meet the king. And as they walk to meet the king, you have King Ahaz, who rules Jerusalem. He is the blind of David. But he's the last of the independent rulers of the line of David. A decision that's going to be made in the next few minutes will ruin the fortunes of David's household. In fact, David's dynasty unravels because of this. After this moment, there will never be another king on David's throne who isn't ruled by somebody else. Assyria, Egypt, or Babylon. Outside Jerusalem, there's a tough situation. There are two armies. They're laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. The reason King Ahaz is afraid is because the king Pekah and the king Rezin from Aram and Ephraim, that is from Syria and Israel, their armies are outside Jerusalem. So basically, there's a siege. They're trying to force Ahaz to help them fight against Assyria, the world power. And in the middle of all this, Ahaz has a very tough decision to make. Just like Joseph did, just like you do, Ahaz has a tough decision to make. Ahaz is trying to decide in his own mind whether he will trust Isaiah and put his faith in God to deliver the people or whether he's going to make a deal with Assyria, pay a bribe to the world power to set him free from this. And I, I think you and I face similar decisions day after day after day. Are you going to walk in faith 
or in sight? Are you going to trust God or your own strength? Are you going to make a deal (coughs) with the world because you think that's your only hope? Or are you going to trust God in faith and believe that he's your only hope? Well, in the midst of this prophecy, the nickname Emmanuel is born and hope stirs just as hope fades. Let's read the prophecies. Chapter 7, verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king in Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shear Yashuv, that is, remnant will return. Meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct in the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, everybody listen very carefully to verse 4. This might be what God says to you this morning. But it's certainly what Isaiah said to Ahaz. In the middle of fear and uncertainty, when Ahaz thought the only companion he could hope for was the pagan king of Assyria, God was offering him a friendship that he could never, never top. He didn't take it. But look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin. I don't know who's plotting your ruin. I don't know if you feel like your ruin is being plotted. I don't know if this year at school or this season of life or these adjustments, I don't know if the political climate, I don't know if the world you live in or the holiday season makes you feel like your ruin is, is urgent. But God's telling Ahaz to relax, to be calm. Because what looks like sure end for him is just like smoldering ashes in real life. God can take care of these kings. And he can take care of you too. But the choice you've got to face is, are you going to trust him or are you going to reach out to see if Assyria will help you? Let me keep reading. Verse 6. They said, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is only resin. It's as if God says, and I can handle him no problem. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God tells Ahaz, basically, you calm down, I'm here. I can take care of these kings, it's not a problem for me. But I need you to recognize the moment of this decision. If you don't stand firm in your faith right now, Ahaz, you will not stand at all. Now what you're about to read is the fact that Ahaz did not stand firm in his faith, and he did not stand at all, and David's dynasty unravels in front of our eyes. But God just offered Ahaz everything. I can settle this for you. Do it my way. And I wonder if God's speaking to us, I can handle this for you. Do it my way. And I wonder if we, like Ahaz, are faltering in our faith, if we think, but I can't see that, I can't trust that, I don't know if that's true. God, I'm not sure if I can trust you. I'm not sure if I can do it your way. I feel so much more confident knowing that I can just ignore you for a moment and be alone for a second and do it my way. Because sometimes my way seems better than your way, even though I'm alone in my way. 
And in Isaiah's prophecy, he's telling Ahaz, stand in your faith or you will not stand at all. And he does it. And the lesson for us, I want you to reach out in faith and believe that you can do this God's way. Let me show you what happens. All right. Verse 10, again, the Lord said to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether it's in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. God just told King Ahaz, I will set you free. I will set your people free. I will undo Pekah. I will undo Rezin. I, God, am ready to move. Name your sign. Name it. What on earth could he have chosen? He could have said, let Pekin walk out of his tent today and fall dead. And he would have fallen dead. He could have said, let the armies that are around Jerusalem be gone in three days' time. And they would have been gone in three days' time. He could have said, let the sun go dark at noon and stay dark until three. It would have been dark for three hours. He could have said, let rain fall from a cloudless sky. Rain would have fallen from a cloudless sky. He could have said anything he wanted because God was ready to move in his life. And it would have been so good for everybody if Ahaz had named a son. But instead, Ahaz has already made his deal. I read 2 Kings chapter 16. I read 2 Chronicles 28, and you should read it. I know that Ahaz has already made his deal with Assyria. Ahaz has already made a deal that's going to make him sell all the articles of silver and gold from God's temple to pay off Assyria to leave him alone. I know that he's already made a deal with the devil. And the next words out of his mouth makes you think for a minute that he's a good man, but he's not. Let me show you this. Verse 11, ask the Lord for a sign, whether in deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. It sounds like Ahaz is trying to be a good man, but he's not. I read 2 Kings, I read 2 Chronicles, I read that Ahaz departed from King David. He did not do what was right in God's eyes. Let me tell you what. The Bible says that Ahaz sacrificed his son in a pagan fire, in a sacrificial ritual to a pagan god, Molech. Ahaz was an idolater. Ahaz went to Damascus and saw the altar in Damascus to pagan gods. He was so impressed, he sent drawings home and asked his builders to have one built in the house of God before he got home and replace God's altar with the pagan altar. He did that. Ahaz set up pagan worship all over Israel and promoted it. This man says, I won't test God, but what he means is really, I'm not going to give God a try. I don't trust God. God's not going to rescue us and can't and won't. This is false humility, but it's not righteousness, I promise you. Basically, Isaiah just said, Ahaz, Stand in your faith or you won't stand at all. And Ahaz said, no, thank you. From this point on, we get the prophecy. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In a moment when it seemed like God could not possibly be with Israel, Isaiah promised that God would be with us. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose right, the land of the two kings that you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Basically, Isaiah said, Emmanuel will be born. God will be with us. And before he's old enough to to eat curds and honey, those two kings that you're scared to death of will be gone. But the bad news is you will be in league with Assyria. And your dynasty will be unraveled because you lacked 
faith. But it will burn in the hearts of God's people a promise that one day God will be with us again. You need to know that this league with Assyria made him a puppet king to the pagans until finally Egypt conquered them and they were puppets to Egypt. Until Babylon, they were puppets to Babylon. But never again would a Davidic king rule Israel independently. From this decision, the lot had been cast. And now that God would be with them, the hope that a Davidic king would rule them, it would seem like nothing but hope. I've got to tell you, this sermon is going to go a little over this morning. I'm sorry for that, but I don't know a way to condense what I want to give you. And I just ask today for the privilege of your patience. I want to tell to you a little bit about the story of David. God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would always have a ruler on the throne if, if, God, if David's children would obey the commandments. But that is coming undone decade after decade after decade. And here Ahaz makes a fateful decision that dooms the house of David. Do you remember that when the angel spoke to Joseph, Joseph was greeted as one of the line of David? Because he's invoking this old promise. But I want to introduce you to a couple of kids. There are three sons in this story that are important to you, just so that you can track it all. So three sons. The first one is Shear Yashuv. And Shear Yashuv, remember his name means a remnant will return. When Isaiah went to the aqueduct, God knew that Isaiah, that Ahaz was going to reject him. He knew that the people were going to go into exile. And it's almost as if this tiny boy, this little child, job shadowing his prophet dad, is a word of hope all on his own to say, I know that you'll choose the wrong and your people will suffer. But one day they'll come back. God will never take his hand off them. A remnant will return and Emmanuel will bless them and they'll know what it's like to have God with them. Maybe that's for you. Maybe you are the remnant. Maybe in your family, you departed from the Lord years ago, and it's your turn to be the remnant that brings faithfulness back to your family name. I don't know. Maybe you're alone in your family in following God, and you need little Shear Yashuv there to say a remnant will return. The second child is Emmanuel. This is the promise that there will be a virgin who will give birth and will call him Emmanuel. This excites the hope in God's people, but when will it happen? There's a third child in chapter 8, as soon as Isaiah gets home. From Ahaz's rejection, he and his wife come together and they have another son. And this son's name is Meher Shalal Hashbaz. It's a fantastic name. Isn't that great? It means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. In other words, Ahaz, Assyria is on their way. And we're about to be plundered and ruined. In fact, Ahaz, you're going to plunder us when you start selling the gold out of the temple to Assyria. In other words, this boy is almost a reversal of the fate. This boy is a reminder that everything's unraveling first. Now granted, before this child is old enough to say mother or father, Pika and Rezin are gone. Listen to me. The things that you worried about the most, they're going to be gone before this toddler's talking. Was it really worth it? Ahaz, was it worth it to sell your soul to Assyria? Friend, I'm going to ask you what you're walking through right now. Seems like the biggest thing in the world, I bet. But before this boy is old enough to know what to do, God can take care of it. I'm asking you to stay close to him. It's not going to be worth it. Meher Shalal Hashbaz was born. Pekah and Rezin faded into the distant background. But Ahaz watched the line of David unravel. But there's hope. What about that Emmanuel baby? Isaiah goes into preaching. 
And I want you to look in chapter 9. In chapter 9, Isaiah knows that even as God disciplines his people and judges and brings punishment, he's got hope. He will bring a rescuer. Now, nobody dreamed that that rescuer would be God himself coming in flesh to suffer and die for us. But there was hope in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning fuel for the fire. One day the wars will end. And what happens next? Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. King Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven, to cast out Satan and demons, to give life where there was death, to reverse the curse. And in Isaiah 9, as Israel begins to suffer, Isaiah begins to preach about the day that wonderful counselor is born. Mighty God, Prince of Peace, will be born. Chapter 11 of Isaiah's prophecy. As it looks clearly to us now that David's dynasty will become a stump, a tree chopped down. This Emmanuel baby gives us hope that a shoot, a fresh branch will grow again. Listen to this. Chapter 11 of Isaiah. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he'll delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll not judge by what he sees with his eyes. Or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling all together. A little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In Isaiah 11, a glimpse of a new creation where the serpent doesn't tempt Adam and Eve to rebel against God, rather the serpent plays with the child. Where a lion eats straw like an ox, where a wolf and a lamb play together, and where a child will lead them. And when we gather every Advent and remember the hope and the love, the joy, the peace in Christ himself, we remember that truly it was a little child that led us. That truly it was the birth of this baby, of Emmanuel, God with us, that brings us the new creation that you need. Now, I want to ask you to shift your mind back with me to Matthew chapter 1 to Joseph. So here we find Joseph now, the line of David, almost forgotten, extinguished, a poor carpenter in Galilee, and a wife pregnant. And Joseph faces a difficult task. What do I do? 
I feel so alone. I'm alone like Ahaz felt alone. I'm alone like Israel in the exile has felt for all these years. And the angel says, what's in your wife is from the Holy Spirit. What is in Mary's betrothed womb is from the Holy Spirit. Trust me. Name him Jesus. He's going to save us. And Joseph, he is Emmanuel. For 730 years, we wondered if God would come back to us. For 730 years, we wondered, has God abandoned David and his promises and his people? And here in poverty, in the most unexpected place, for a man who felt all alone, the angel says, Joseph, you may have forgotten you were the house of David, but I bet this means something to you. Emmanuel is in our womb. And the world is about to change. The lion will lay down with the lamb because of the baby. Our sins will be washed away because of the baby. God will always be with you because of the baby. Joseph raised the baby. When the angel leaves, Joseph is no longer alone. And neither are you. You're not alone. I ask you, is God with us? And theologically, He is. The Bible teaches us that God is omnipotent. He is omniscient and He is omnipresent. And omnipresent means everywhere. God's with us everywhere. He doesn't have size or spatial dimensions. He's present at every point in space, His whole being. Yet God acts differently in different places. It seems crazy to think that God can be everywhere at once. But it doesn't seem so crazy when you think about creation that there was a moment when there was no matter, but there was still God. And so when God fills the expanse of the universe, when He fills the cosmos with matter, He's bigger and different than it anyway. He fills every inch of it. There's no space and time to God. You're never alone. You cannot hide from Him. You cannot run from Him. But He can never lose you either. He is always near you at your side, closer than you will ever think. In the incarnation that we celebrate every Christmas, God came to us in flesh in the Christ. Like God walked our streets, breathed our air. He felt our suffering and our pain, and then he died for us in our place to redeem us. You are not alone. And the incarnation reminds you that the ministry of the Holy Spirit reminds you that you're not alone. Christ told the disciples, I'll send my comforter. He'll be with you. I'm going away, but I'll send him. You'll never be alone. Jesus promised the disciples that as we finish out the Great Commission, he will never leave us or forsake us. You're never alone, ever alone. In your parenting struggle, you're never alone. Marching out of that bedroom, tears in your eyes, frustrated again, you're not alone. Checking into work tomorrow, trying to make a difference in a workplace that doesn't seem to care that you're coming, you are not alone. Middle schooler, you feel abused and beaten up. Social media has crushed your heart. You feel so different than who you thought you were supposed to be. You're not alone. You feel alone, but you're not alone. The greatest thing that I want to give us today in this sermon, if it is theologically true that we're never alone, if Joseph learned that, if Ahaz rejected that, if this baby shows the promise that we are never alone, that God is with us, I wish that we could have the God consciousness that we need to see it. I got new glasses a few weeks ago. Some of you noticed. It was amazing when I put them on. I remember the first time I put glasses on. I didn't realize that my sight had gotten poorer. I was in college. I was looking at chalkboards at Mississippi State, and I thought, now what is that? I need to move up. 
and I got glasses, and suddenly those boards popped out, and the trees had leaves on them. The world became so many things that were always there, but I'd lost the ability to see. I could suddenly see. Well, when I got my new glasses a few weeks ago, I just remembered that in the four and a half years since my last trip to the eye doctor, boy, my eyes have changed. When I put those glasses on, I suddenly remember, realized what a good-looking church you are, you know? <laughs> but when I put those glasses on and I could see again, I thought, wow, I wish that God could give us glasses that would grant us God consciousness, the ability to see that He is always around us and with us. The ability to feel His presence when you feel alone. The ability to know that even as your prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling, they're not. I wish that God could give us glasses that would grant us God consciousness. Because I think if He could, if we could be aware, then just like God told Ahaz, we could realize that if God is here, then we can be calm. We can calm down. We can be still at our heart and relax. We cannot lose heart. And we can learn to stand in our faith. Boy, if God could let us see how close He is, how much more courage would we have to swim against the stream, to stand up for what's right, to make a difference for people? How much less pressure would we feel to make fun of somebody, to pick on anybody, or to, or to just conform to the image of the world? How much more confident would we be to be the church, the bride of Christ, to bring the gospel? If we could have God consciousness, if we could be awakened to see God all around us. For Joseph, it took an angel to say the baby in the womb of Mary is Emmanuel, God. God is with us because God is coming to the earth in the incarnation of that baby. What would it take for us, for God to open our eyes so we could see it? And what would be the difference? How would it change you if you knew that you were going through this season, but you were not alone. That 2,000 years ago, God came to the earth to change everything, and it's changing. New creation's coming. It started. You're in it. How much would it change you to know that God is right here with you? And if Isaiah and little, little Shier Yeshuv came to you to remind you that the remnant will return, that there's always that faithfulness, God's hand is always on you, and he said, stand in your faith or you won't stand at all, and you had to decide between Assyria or God, a league with the world or the kingdom of heaven. If you had to decide, am I going to handle this God's way or my way, how much strength and faith and hope and confidence could you have to make the right choice so that generations don't unravel if you could have God consciousness to see what God could do? My prayer as we celebrate Christmas together today, we look at this eternal hope that was planted 730 plus years before Jesus. For you, I want it to bear some fruit in your life. I want to give you peace. I want you to spend the next week practicing the presence of God, reminding yourself all the time that God is with you until you learn that you're not alone so that your prayers are constant dialogue and your courage is quickened. And today I challenge you, as we embark for a week of mission for the Lord, would you serve Him faithfully? Would you connect people to the kingdom? Would you invite them to church? Would you give them the gospel? Would you bring them to your home for discipleship? But can we change the world because God is with us? Can you go through this little hard time because God is with you? Can you make a difference because God is with you? At the end of this service, I just want to give you, like we always do, the opportunity to respond. Jessica started our service off in an amazing way. She gave public testimony that God has saved her. Her baptism is a reminder of your baptism and of God's plea for us to make new life in the world. 
And so as we reflect on her baptism, I just ask you to reflect on yours. If you stand here today and you're lost, you've never given your life to Jesus, you haven't been baptized because you never gave your life to Christ, well, why don't you do that today? I want to ask you to give your life to a God that loves you more than anything in the world will ever love you. Would you give your life to this God of Emmanuel today? Make a decision in here right now that you want to give your future to God. Pray it simply, honestly, mean it at your pew. You don't need any magic. There's no special words. You give your life to God and come tell me that you've made him your Lord. We'll celebrate baptism with you. But maybe God's stirring your heart in a different way. And however he's stirring you, I want you to be able to respond. In just a second, we're going to stand and sing. But the altars are going to be open if you want to come down and pray in front of the church. I'll be here, happy to pray with you. Other ministers will join me to pray for you. But I just want us to reach out and acknowledge today, you are not alone. And you give him your thanks as we respond. Father, we ask your grace that as we grieve, you grieve with us. As we celebrate, you celebrate with us. And as we face a challenge, Lord, you stand beside us to give us courage. I ask that you grant us a God consciousness so that we could see you and practice your presence and be aware of your nearness. Lord, we relish in that today. And I give you thanks for Emmanuel, who has come to prove it, who came that he could die and be raised to start it all so that you would always be in your people. We ask your blessing on this church family now as we respond to your word, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.